0: Jake and Ben, ninety-seven five and twelve eighty. The zone. Let's talk a little jazz basketball. Let's get out to the Smart Rain special guest line. Joining us now, of course, uh, my co-host for jazz pre, half, and post. Long-time coach along the Wasatch front. He's our friend Tim Lacombe. What's going on, Tim?
1: Long time, long time, long time. Plan. I don't know.
0: I, I want to rattle off your resume, long but time. you know, we, we'd be here all day if I did that. But you know,
1: I just long time. Uh, underachiever. What else can <laughs> we throw on my name?
0: Okay, okay, we got to start here, Coach Ben. Has a theory when it comes to successful college basketball coaches and where they coach. Well, ben, we uh, actually started from football. We did, we but it applies to basketball too. It applies to most college coaching. So let's let's hear it. Sum it up for Tim. You pretty boys can only coach. No, you
2: can only be a pretty boy if you coach on the East Coast or on the coast. Either
0: west or east. If if you're one of those programs who's on the you coast. You need to have an equally attractive coach. You can't hire an ugly coach. This started with Craig Bowl in Wyoming can't coach in Southern California because he's too ugly. So, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, right. So do you have to be good looking to coach in certain programs and succeed? Does it help in recruiting?
1: I certainly, I, I, that was not attack I took. I always put it that way, because I don't have that going for me. I have a proverbial face for radio. So, um, but I, I can't imagine it hurts. Like, you know, Jay writes, like, a, yep. he could do ads for J.C. JCPenney or something like that. Um, what's our guy at USC? Oh, you know, yeah. If he's not being arrested by the FBI, he, he could possibly be a... Drug smuggler. I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, so so Tim's on board. He's on congratulations. Board. He went a step further, but that's I why we kind of believe it. I kind of
1: believe it. I, I, I can see that, and it, that would make um, Ben Anderson. You should go coach in New York City, man. Well, that's the thing. That's the
2: That was where Jake kind of undercut me. Is he says Tom Thibodeau is not handsome enough to be the coach of the New York Knicks, and I said historically that's they true. haven't had great looking coaches. Jeff Van Gundy was yeah. a looking man, though
1: especially when he's hanging from Alonzo Morning's leg.
2: Before we get to the NBA and the Jazz, let's talk a little bit about what you saw last night between uh, BYU and UVU. I know you were uh, watching the game with Coach Rose. What what did you see from that game? What does it mean for UVU, and does it say anything big picture about BYU?
1: No, I I mean, what's crazy to me is I lived that very scenario uh, a few years ago, and um, it's a game that, you know, I think Pope realizes, you know, it's a hard game to play. Uh, there's not a whole lot of upside. Um, you know, you win, you're supposed to, and you lose, and the sky's falling. I actually thought he took the right tack after the game uh, in saying that season is a journey. And, you know, I think there's no doubt that it's not a game that anybody thought BYU would lose. But you stick around sports long enough, and I would like you mentioned was with Coach Rose, and he said to me a million times, "If you stick around long enough, you'll see everything, or just about everything." So uh, it was interesting game. It was really, uh, you know, physical. Not a lot of skill. You know, not a lot of guys making shots, but it was kind of like an in-state game, and um, you know, Madsen and his guys just really kind of wanted it more. It seemed like. They played harder um, in certain stretches, and BYU just kind of got stuck uh, down the stretch, not being able to score, find easy ways to score. Certainly not having Gideon there was a big thing, and then losing Baxter, which I'm just heartbroken about because Gav's my guy. Um, so I love that kid, and just a sad deal. But, you know, happy for the guys that won and sad for the guys that lost, and that's kind of where you sit when you're me.
0: I want to ask you about UVU real quick because uh, we saw Coach Hunsaker uh, do some nice things there. Uh, obviously, Mark Pope did uh, a lot of nice things, and now we're we're seeing them uh, currently under Mark Madsen as as a good team. I mean, if if anything they proved last night, they're a good team again. What's what's the secret in the sauce down there? What why have them they been able to build a successful program at the level they have?
1: I, well, I think you know Coach Hunsaker went in and kind of took that thing D one. Um, that was a big deal. I, I remember, you know, they had to play some sort of, um, you know, intermediate schedule before they got totally accepted to D one. So they were playing all these squarely games all over the country. It made like independence in football look like um, the Taj Mahal. But these guys, you know, they went all over the place, played these games, got themselves in position to be in Division One. Um, you know, Coach Hunsaker actually won the WAC. Um, you know, that's not talked about a lot. But in his time there, he won the league, and um, you know, they got an opportunity to uh, to play in the NIT, if I'm not mistaken. So a lot of happened there. And then I think what Pope came in, he just did a good job of uh, building the awareness. I think he's got a great ability to do that to hype up the the program and and at that he did a big, big deal, big job in, in infrastructure like that built a practice facility down there which was huge. Uh, and now Madison's come in and I just think, you know, everybody I talk to down there, he's just he's a very likable guy, uh, who's a straight shooter. Um, doesn't get too up, too or too down, just kind of does his thing. And a terrific dancer, I might add. <laughs> um but but I just think Mark's done a good job of kind of building on what everybody else has done and then adding his little wrinkle to it. And I think he's, he's done a good job of getting some transfers. And he's gotten some local kids that, you know, uh, that kind of consider UVU to be a spot they want to be. And then he's done a great job, you know, going out and getting guys in junior college ranks and such to fill out the roster. But I, I'm really excited about what he's doing, uh, what their, their department's doing. And um, that was certainly the biggest win in the history of their program. It was the one over us before. So uh, I would say that this one kind of surpasses that, beating the top 15 teams.
2: Switching we'll switch it up and talk to some Utah Jazz basketball. Uh, it sounds like by all reports, Royce O'Neal is back and healthy with the Jazz. He was at practice uh, two days ago. He's going to be back uh, again today, I would imagine. And he's probably back in the starting lineup tomorrow in place of Joe Ingles. Was the Jazz offensive performance, which had been their two best offensive performances in their last two games, both wins, due to Joe Ingles being in the starting lineup? Was it the quality of the opponent they were playing on the road? What do you chalk that up to?
1: Man, I, I almost think... Probably a combination of a lot of factors. But I think more than anything, I think they all kind of got right after that loss to the Pelicans. Um, You know, talk about a season being a journey, and this is a very talented team. I mean, over the last two weeks, the number one offense in the league at a crazy number, offensive rating of 122. So certainly guys out there in every spot that can uh, affect the game positively the key is figuring out how to do it together. And I feel like that's where the steps were taken. Like the game, um, you know, against Portland was such a blowout and Portland was so bad. But I, I take from that that the Jazz still attacked it and, and played the way they they know is going to be kind of the, you know, based on ball movement predicated on defensive intensity, ability to rebound and run. I think they found uh, a way to you know, in confidence again in winning that way. Um, I, I'm really intrigued to think, know what you think, Ben, on, because Jake and I have talked about it, but I'm intrigued to know what you think about Joe starting or coming off the bench. I know it's been kicked around the last couple days, um, but I, I, I do believe Joe has a little more comfort level. Um, I just don't know how you manage, you know, ball handling off the bench because I know Joe kind of brings that when he comes in. Um, But I'd be curious what you think about the whole starting thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think my argument for Joe being better is he's playing with better players. And, you know, you play with better guys, you're going to look good. And he's particularly... Design his skill set is designed well to benefit from having better guys around him. Whether it's shooters, right. whether it's better rollers, and Hassan Whiteside's a better roller than, or I should say, uh, Rudy Gobert's a better roller than Hassan Whiteside is, and he's also a better help side defender, so he covers up some of the mistakes that Joe makes on that side of the ball. So I, I think that's a lot of why Joe Ingles looks better. But it's why you you know played him in in important minutes in the playoffs last year, even when Mike Conley was healthy in that first round. So I, I think. That's why Joe Ingles is so good, and I think it's a good wrinkle to know you have the ability to go to, and it's not terribly unlike Manu Ginobili not starting for the Spurs, where he was the better player, but yes, the value he brought and kind of increased everybody else off the bench had its own value in itself.
1: Yeah, I, I feel that way, and I think Royce obviously he's got a he got a really defined role on this team, and really to to go out there and guard the toughest guy, you know, have that assignment, kind of have to do that from the start, so. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't feel one way or another about it. I think it's just an interesting observation that Joe has. To, there seems to be a little bit more comfortable. Um, but you make a great point. I think because a the spacing is probably a little better, and you know, and he's getting a little bit more space too because guys are hugging. Um, whereas when Royce, you know, that guy's always kind of off and giving help where he can. So, just an interesting kind of scheme situation going on there
0: seems like the ball movement in the last couple of games has really benefited Donovan Mitchell. And uh, Donovan, you, you know, went through some bumps and skids. He won a game for him, taking it over in the fourth quarter, but at times, you know, didn't put up the numbers maybe he was looking for. But then these last couple of games, as the ball movement is there, Donovan's numbers have been great. Why does Why does that style of play seem to benefit him so much?
1: I just think that's what... You know, he he has the ability to do all those things. He can facilitate, like Ben said, Joe does really well. But he does that really well um, often too. And I think it serves Donovan well because if he is a multifaceted guy who can shoot it, um, drive it, pass it, it just makes him a more difficult guard. I think early in the season, part of the issue with ball movement is guys weren't making shots. So. I think it was almost like, well, you know, I'm just going to go get this done again. Quinn alluded after a game the last week um, that, you know, th- that this this offense has to be predicated on ball movement, um, that when they go out there and hold the ball, when the ball sticks, it just slows everything down. So I think almost Donovan has had a uh, a rebirth to that effect. I know he had seven assists the other night and um, and is such a, an effective passer. But that coupled with his ability to score, you know, is really kind of what sets him apart. He does, he's, he's more than just a one-trick pony. And I think as Donovan continues down that road, I think it's going to be easier for everybody else as well. Um, you know, I think the Jazz got into a little bit of a funk, too much dribble into shots. And, um, and, and I feel like that's kind of been rectified over the last couple games.
2: You touched on it a little bit earlier in this conversation about how Friday night's loss actually might, might have been a bit of a good wake-up call for the Jazz, because you lost at home to the Pelicans when you had absolutely no business losing to a team, even though back-to-back home games in the same town against the same team is just ridiculously goofy. But the Jazz have, kind of historically, you look back, they've had some of these runs before, after a bad loss. Last year, you remember, even though we didn't know at the time, I think it was Game 8, we didn't know how good the Knicks were. The Jazz got blown out by the Nets on the road, and then the next night, I think, had a 15-point lead or something over uh, the Knicks, and then let that go and ended up losing by, by 12 points on the road by up a huge fourth quarter to Austin Rivers. I, I do feel like maybe that could be a galvanizing loss for the Jazz against New Orleans, even though their road's going to get tough. Cleveland's playing well. Minnesota's playing well. Philadelphia has Joel Embiid back, and we know the Wizards are one of the best teams in the East. It, it does feel like maybe that will light a fire, at least try and get the Jazz to focus, because it seemed like so many of their problems this year have been just lack of focus issues.
1: I totally, I, I totally agree, Ben. I think you know, and I don't know. For me, it was almost like that game against the Pelicans. Whether it lit a fire or just kind of reinforced everything that that they already know, I think that that was the telling thing. Uh, after that game, you know, the post game got really, really uh, interesting because you know some of the curtains came down, and you know Quinn talked about how they have to play to be successful, and then each guy came in and added their little piece to that, um, and I told. Jake then that it's interesting after a game like that, the fact that everybody's a on the same page and b really kind of talking about the way they have to play to be successful. Like that's half the battle. That's more than half the battle. It's that whole buy-in piece and teams go in and out of that. You're never going to have a team that's fully functional all the time. So um, there's going to be times where two guys, you know, they don't feel like playing that way tonight Um, and, and that gets contagious, but I think the more reinforcement you can have when you have games like that, things just don't click. You lose games you shouldn't. I think it just brings everybody right back to the mark. Like, hey, we, we can be special, but we got to be, be special in our way. You know, Our defense is built around Rudy corralling and, and keeping him as close to the middle of the floor as, as possible. He, he's uh, impacting way more shots this year. And then, again, offensively, really talented dudes. But don't forget that, the, the beauty of the Jazz offense is that the ball beats the, de- the defense when it's passed, and as opposed to dribbling. Um, and that's where they kind of got in a rut. But that, to me, is is what really the positive out of that loss was, and I could see a springboard uh, of just a reinforcement of of what you said, J- uh, Ben. Focus.
0: Who's the favorite in the West right now?
1: Um, I would have to say Phoenix. The way they're playing, right? Uh, I mean, you ask me, they've rattled off, what have they rattled off, 15 or 16 straight?
2: I think it's 17 now, yeah.
1: 17 straight? Yep. So, uh, and I just, you know, my affinity for Chris Paul and what he does, and I think Devin Booker's a bona fide uh, scoring god, you know. Uh, I I just like the way those guys play, their cohesion. But the Jazz are right there. Um, and, And Golden State certainly is in the conversation with, uh, with Steph and Draymond and their experience, and I think they're having a great year. But I think those three teams right now—teams I talk about I certainly wouldn't bring the Lakers up right now.
2: Yeah, so let me ask you this: Let me bring the Lakers up right now.
1: Okay, <laughs> uh,
2: after the top three, the Jazz are playing—you know, six hundred sixty-six percent basketball, or you know, sixty-six percent. They're fourteen and yeah. seven. Everyone else is basically 500. Mavs are 11-9, and 9, Grizzlies are 11-10, and 10, Lakers are 12-11, and 11, and then you do have Clippers, Blazers, T-Wolves, Nuggets. They're all also within a game of, of 500. So Mavericks, Grizzlies, Lakers, Clippers, Blazers, Timberwolves, Nuggets. Which of those teams could be in the conversation for being a top-three team in the West if they aren't there, even though they're not there right now?
1: Um, that's a good question. I probably would throw, and I know Denver's not playing terrific right now, but I, I just love what Jokic can do, particularly in a uh, a playoff series you know, where he could get crazy hot. Man, they miss Murray, though. Uh, you know, the Clippers are hanging out there. They're just kind of doing their thing. Uh, and, and I'm not huge on the Clippers, like, long-term, but they certainly are, are freaky scary. Uh, probably out of that group, though, the, the team I would pick is probably just because of consistency and Luca is the Mavericks being possibly. They don't play great defense, but a team that could possibly kind of hang out in that upper echelon because I feel like it's kind of their time, you know, time for them to do something like that. Uh, but to me, it's wide open. I, I certainly don't think it's going to be the Trailblazers. Yeah, uh, no, but no, that is the worst mm. defensive effort I've seen in some time.
0: Real quick, Coach, your thoughts on Boston? The game we've got tomorrow
1: night. Boston's a great town. Spent two years of my life there. Uh, interesting, you know, they they're going through a whole new situation with Brad Stevens kind of taking the reins and turning coaching duties over. Um, you know, they're they're kind of trying to find their way right now. But I really like this place in the Jazz room to have all this time off. I can only speak for myself. I feel like I've gone to Bali for three days. <laughs> it's been unbelievably great. Uh, to have the time off. I think that'll really benefit the Jazz. Uh, it, it'll be a fun game, but I think the Jazz should be able to handle Boston pretty, pretty easily.
0: Tim, thanks, buddy. You're the best. We'll see you tomorrow.
1: Awesome. Talk to you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Coach.
0: That's Coach Tim McComb, Jazz pre-half and post-game analyst.
1: I
2: don't blame anyone, especially Jazz fans, for being frustrated with the start to the season because and, and, it hasn't felt easy, which has been kind of the common theme. And it's why I've talked about why I like Joe Ingles in the starting lineup. It's felt easy when Joe's been out there. But man, who's had an easy season this year? I mean, Phoenix and Golden State. And just about everyone else has had a brutally miserable season. Nets are 15-6, and six, but they only beat bad teams. They have not beat the good teams on their schedule. They got blown out by the Nets. Like, when they play good teams, they lose. The Wizards have been one of the most enjoyable stories. They're second in the East right now at 14-8, and eight, but does anyone take Washington seriously? That's not real. Yeah. No, Bulls, maybe, but I don't think they're really going to be able to hang on as it goes. Milwaukee's won eight in a row, and they're six games over five hundred. I mean, they have a worse record than the Jazz, and they've won eight straight. Meaning they were two games under 500 before this started. The Heat are beat up. Bam Adebayo's out for the next you know two months right now with the thumb injury. Cavs have been a fun story, but they're two games over 500, and that's just the East. You look at the West, yeah, the Mavericks were like they they are entering Luca's prime, and I get that he's not you know he's like 22, 23, but he's one of the best players ever. Those guys enter their prime at an earlier point in their life than other players do because he's so smart. His game is not. Uh, predicated on his athleticism and and where it goes when he turns 32 or 33 years old you've got a decade with this guy as a top five player in the NBA and they're two games over 500 and they're four and six in their last ten the Grizzlies were expecting this big breakout from John Morant this year and he was all NBA in the preseason and he was great we saw him here they beat the Jazz they're one game over 500 Lakers were trying to get back to being a championship team one game over 500 Clippers aren't going to have Kawhi this year Trailblazers are nonsensically bad Timberwolves They're on it. They've arrived. They're 11 and 11. It's like no one's having a good season this year. The Nuggets thought they were going to win a championship coming off of Nikola Jokic's MVP year. They're a game under 500. Michael Porter Jr.'s out for the rest of the year. PJ Dozier's out for the rest of the year. Jamal Murray's not going to come back at 100% this year. Just the Pelicans. Enough said. I just, I get it, I, I, and you know, don't only
0: feel good because your neighbors have a worse life than you yeah, are. nobody got better in the offseason, But in fact, it looked like everybody got worse.
2: Right, and, and yeah, in fact, I think Rudy Gay was really one of the biggest additions in the offseason yeah. for any of these Western Conference teams. I think you can credit the Suns going out and getting JaVale McGee, because he's helped that second unit, and they're playing well, and I think you got to wonder if they're peaking too early, or if they're just so much better than any, anyone else in the NBA, they'll run away at the championship, and that's certainly possible, but uh, you know it's easy to get focused on with the things the Jazz have not done easily or well this
0: season. But man, nobody really is playing great. Quickly on Dallas, how do you surround him with that team?
2: Yeah, he's, he, I've always said this, the same thing about LeBron James, and they're, they're kind of similar because they, the, here's the hard part about LeBron, here's the hard part about Luka. Whatever you're best at, he's better than you. Like, you can be the best passer in the NBA and go play with Luka and Luka's a better passer than you are. You can be a great scorer, Devin Booker, Luka's a better scorer than Devin Booker is. He may not average more points, but he's a better player. He's better at that one thing if he just wanted to focus on that than you are. So it's easy to win with these guys. LeBron, Luka. It's hard to play with them. That's always been my theory. It's why you've never had these like incredible second stars for LeBron. And, you know, Kyrie helped him win a championship, and Dwayne was incredible, and Chris Bosh was incredible. But it's never felt like a true true big three. I mean, Anthony Davis had a really good year a couple of years ago, but even then, he's kind of waned. He's he's really kind of fallen off. I think it's hard to play next to some of these guys who are so impactful everywhere because it doesn't give you the spots to shine where you want to shine. So, it's really difficult to build around a guy like Luka Doncic.
0: I get it. That's why I think it's a grand experiment of, can you give somebody the ball the whole game and actually win a championship? Because that's what Q's I mean, hard Harden. to do. James that's, Harden's really hard to build around. The, hey, that's what Dallas is trying to do. Yep. LeBron was good enough. Part of the reason is because LeBron played both sides of the ball. But I certainly get what you're talking about. Yeah. you know It's hard to be LeBron's teammate because he's the one pulling the strings. He's the one with the ball in his hand. He's the best player on the team. And I Steph get
2: it. Curry has certainly shaken up this theory as well as anyone has. I, I still, for the most part... You can look back at NBA history and say, like, it's really hard to have the best player on your team be shorter than six foot six.
0: Yes, that's a physical thing with Steph Curry. I totally agree with that. Like,
2: and he, what he did that was different was he stretched the floor up to thirty five feet, which nobody had done before. And then the rest of the league has caught up to that. You know, kind of, th- never as good as he has. Right. But they're like, well, we got to guard you at thirty five feet, and we have to have players who can defend in space now behind that. And nobody had that for five years, and the Warriors ran away with so many championships.
0: There's still what two players in the league that when they pull up from 35 feet you respected everybody correct. else you just laugh at correct and it only works for one of them yeah is damian lillard and like no one cares if damian pulls up from 35 right. it's cool you've done it i saw you beat the thunder doing it I, I mean we've seen lebron do it but the truth is whoever's guarding lebron is laughing because right. when lebron is doing that you know what he's not doing is right. dunking over you correct right.
2: so yeah, yes i agree with you steph is is the one guy who's thrown he's the exception to the rule but i still really strongly believe that your best player needs to be six six or bigger
0: Hmm. All right, uh, stay tuned. We'll get to the top three stories at KSLsports.com coming up next. Uh, Jacob ninety 97.5 and 1280 of the zone.